Here we go. Welcome to the Retirement Plan Playbook. On today's show, we're going to talk about cash management strategies for inflation. Inflation is here and it's hitting all of us, so we're going to get into the weeds of it. I'm Brent Pasqua, founder of RPA Wealth Management. I'm here with Matthew Thiel, certified financial planner, and Joshua Winterswijk, certified financial planner. But as we get started, Halloween's around the corner. Do you guys enjoy this holiday and what's your plan for it? You know, I'm, I'm not a big Halloween guy, um, but it is fun, you know, to get together and it kind of si- signals the kickoff of the holiday season. Um, right after Halloween, it feels like Thanksgiving's right around the corner and then we get into the Christmas season. So that's fun. Um, you know, I have a daughter now, so dress her up and I'm sure it'll be more enjoyable for me as she gets a little older and starts doing trick-or-treating. Nice, man. I, I actually don't have any plans yet. Um, so yeah, it's on a Sunday, so it'll be cool football be, be on that day. Um, but uh, I'm sure we'll watch Hocus Pocus, my wife's favorite holiday or a Halloween movie. So I'm sure that's on the, the agenda for that day. What about you, Brent? Um, you know, like when you're younger as a kid, Halloween is great. And then when you get a little bit older before you have kids, Halloween's not as exciting. But Halloween for kids is they are so excited every year for that. And that just makes me excited. I love watching them just have so much fun. So. I'm excited for it because I know how much they look forward to it, and I, I enjoy how much they get out of trigger trading. So I'm excited to watch them, and they already bought their costumes, and it'll be fun for them. Nice. All right, so let's get into the headlines. Uh, Social Security benefits increased 5.9%. So essentially, next year's cost of living adjustment from Social Security, as they announced this last week, is 59 The increase will translate to an additional approximation of $92 on average to retirees next year, the largest increase in approximately 40 years. This is substantial. I think it's important to a lot of people. They've wanted to know for a while, why did Social Security do this and, and why such a large increase? Yeah, so they did this because inflation's running at 5%. And so that's how cost of living adjustments work is, you know, your Social Security will be ingest, adjusting with the inflation rate. And when the inflation rate's coming in, it's reading at 5%. You know, that's cue for the government that it's time to adjust Social Security. So one thing that's interesting here is the rate that Social Security is increasing by was actually slightly higher than the inflation rate right now. Um, so then most people who are just living on Social Security should be made whole, which is pretty, pretty cool. So is that because they think inflation is going to be higher throughout next year also? Is that why they're giving it some gap? Uh, potentially, yeah, that could be one reason why. But I mean, if inflation's higher is pretty high next year as well, we could probably expect another five percent raise at this time. Um, you know, in twenty twenty two. This I think is meaningful not to everybody, but for people who are dependent on Social Security, or you know, there are people who aren't necessarily. But this is helpful. I mean, I think this any increase is helpful, but a substantial increase like this that provides a little luxury for people to be able to have a little bit more income while things are getting more expensive. No, I definitely agree. It's a raise and it's a raise that was definitely needed after we saw the inflation numbers. And it's going to be, you know, good for everyone that that's receiving this. We know that Social Security is such a big part of retirees' income in America. Um, so there's just going to be a lot of people that this is going to affect positively. One thing I'll say, kind of my last point on this is if you are an employee or even if you're 1099 and you do contract work, raise your prices by over 5% and you you better hope that your job is giving you that 5% cost of living adjustment next year on your salary or you're going to be falling behind. 
Um, so I would most likely expect that from your, your corporation that you work for, or, you know, it might be time to explore your options in the job market. That's a good point because even uh, Medicare is going up a little bit, prescription costs going up a little bit. So that's going to offset some of that increase. So, you know, if they're doing it, you might as well be too. Yep. Yeah. I just hope Medicare doesn't go up so much that it offsets a lot of the increase that people are getting from social security. We've seen that happen in the past, but I think this increase is large enough where people are going to see some positive gain here. It's actually only, I think, about 11% of the increase. So it isn't that big of a percentage that Medicare is going up relative to the cost of living increase. So again, kind of a positive there for, for retirees. Yeah, that's really good to know. All right, let's get into the second one. Foreclosures are starting to surge as government and private sector programs designed to help homeowners to deal with the economic fallout of the COVID-19 pandemic have begun to expire. Mortgage lenders began the foreclosure process of 25,000 plus properties in the third quarter, a 32% increase from the second quarter. This is somewhat concerning, and I'm curious on how this could also impact housing prices right now. You know, Brent, I'm going to tell you, this is one of those ones where when you read the headline, it seems scary. But then when you read the actual article, it's not scary at all. <laughs> um, so it's, it's kind of, you, can, you know, if you're thinking you're waiting at home, you're thinking there's going to be a housing crisis, there's not. Um, housing prices aren't going to fall because of this. The average is over 40000 a quarter. We're, so we're below average right now. We're coming up from such a low base because of the pandemic, right? So that's what's driving the percent increase. This is kind of neat. It's really a non-story. If you read the headline, it seems scary. But if you read the actual story, you know that things are actually still really strong. That's exactly what I thought. When you first read the headline, it says surging. But I don't think that that's the right word to describe what's actually going on. Like you said, it's below average. Um, And also, you know, right now there's housing values have been going up. There's tons of equity in these homes. So homeowners do have options. Um, A lot of the mortgage companies have a lot of programs too to even help out with this situation. There's a lot of jobs out there still too for people to go back to work and and get caught up. So again, I don't think that this is as big of a headline as this article makes it seem. I think this is probably one of the critical areas of when you look at stories that get released. You just have to probably sift through the data to know whether or not uh, you can make accurate decisions based on what the media is saying. Because here's my problem with this. If somebody's sitting out there waiting to buy for houses to prices to drop, and they get a headline article like this that says something that is making them think that housing prices are to drop, but that's not actually what's taking place, this stuff impacts people's lives. Yeah, absolutely. They're not even projecting it to, to be back to normal levels until middle of next year. Right. So, all right. So let's get into retirement planning corner. Let's get into the inflation. Consumer price index readings have come in a f- at 5% or higher on a year over year basis for five straight months, undermining the transitory theme put it, uh, forward by central bankers. Americans should start better managing their cash to earn higher rates on return than banks are currently offering. Today, we're going to get into discussing what are some of our favorite cash management stories to offset inflation and how to deal with inflation. So first, let's talk about what is inflation. So inflation is when prices rise, you know, in general. So we've, ta- we've been talking about now for most of the year, a gallon of milk, you know, costs $5. Now it costs $5.50. That is inflation. It's when 
prices start to rise. On the opposite side, there's deflation, and that's when prices decrease. You don't actually don't want deflation. You want some inflation because we want things getting better over time. So why is inflation a concern for people that will maintain or keep a lot of money in cash? Well, it's a loss of purchasing power. And if you're not making at least 5% on your money right now, then you're losing purchasing power on the cash you're holding in the bank. So a lot of people are like, hey, why is the stock market rallying so much right now? Like, Why are stocks going up? It's like, well, one, because corporations are making a ton of money, but two, because we have inflation and stocks are a tremendous hedge against inflation. Um, so if you're holding stocks, you're doing great, right? Uh, stocks are returning, you know, pull up to 15% on average the last few years and inflation's at 5%, so you're up 10, you're winning. But on the, on the flip side, if you're keeping your money in a bank right now, banks are paying zero. And so you're losing 5% of your money every year. That's a loss of purchasing power. Right. So the stuff that you could have bought today is a lot less than what you could be buying in the future if you're holding your money in cash. Exactly. Yeah. And why don't the banks pay a higher interest rate for savers? Well, the bank's rate that they actually offer, offer for saver is are benchmarked to the federal rate or the Fed rate. And so you see mortgage rates are low, right? That's also tied to that same rate indirectly. And then also you have on the opposite side, savings accounts are low. So when the Federal Reserve comes out and says, well, you know, we want to stimulate the economy because we were in this recession, they're going to keep interest rates low. So that means it's good for borrowers. We want spending, we want loans being taken out. But the adverse side to that is for savers, it's a bad thing because, again, that rate is going to be low on the savings accounts for those people. They want investment assets going up too, right? I mean, that's the whole thing with why the stock market's going up. They, they wanted to boost stock prices after the crash during COVID. And so that's why they, they cut interest rates because uh, you have nowhere to put your money. And, you know, our clients, a lot of people benefit from this because we knew that. But other people didn't and now they're hurting. And they don't want people saving money, right? They want people spending money. And then it, it also then helps the economy, which in turn helps, can potentially help the stock market. So stimulating this economy was the goal. Um, it's working, but indirectly it's also causing some inflation. Yeah. So it's not really the banks or the savings institutions that are are determining what their rates are going to be on their CDs or savings accounts or any of these other types of accounts, is that correct? It is and it isn't. I mean, so theoretically um it is the Federal Reserve that sets the rate at which banks borrow at. Um and so banks do have the capacity to earn a little bit more to give a little bit more interest, but why would they? I mean, people are sitting on cash at 0%. The banks are making a ton of money. Like, why would they change it? And, and that's where they make money. I mean, you, you think about it. The banks, your deposit accounts, like savings accounts at the bank are yielding zero. But they're lending you, you know, let's say a personal loan, a mortgage at 3 or 4%, right? So that's their spread. That spread can also be too big because you'll go look for a different bank or a different competition. So they have to stay competitive as well. Also being tied to that. Fed rate. Um, so it all kind of multiple variables there. Um, but again, that's how the banks make money. All right. So what are some of our, and your guys' individually, favorite cash management strategies? Um, I'll go first. I, I like, you know, a high yield savings account. Um, I, I know we recommend Marcus a lot. The Josh, I hear that you've uh, been looking at Ally a little bit. I don't know if I'd call them high yield savings accounts, just online savings accounts. 
Okay. Online <laughs> online savings accounts, they typically pay a slightly higher interest rate than traditional Bank of America does. They do. Yeah. Bank of America is probably like at 10 basis points right now. If you're looking at Marcus or Ally, they're at 50 basis points or half a percent. Um, so they are better, d- definitely. So they're high yield because they're higher than the bank. Yeah. And they can do that because they're smaller. They have less overhead. They're also, a lot of them are just starting out. They're relatively new, right? So they want the more deposits, right? So then they can eventually lend that money out. Um, so they are trying to attract deposits and, you know, gain customers. So, so they're offering those higher rates. That's, that's actually a really good point that I don't think a lot of people realize. Um, and I, I didn't even think of is that the banks are offering, these ones are offering a nice rate because they want you to deposit your money there. They do. So then they could lend it out. Yeah. And you can even see that with certain banks. I mean, banks, when you're seeing a teaser rate or a higher rate than another bank, you can kind of assume that they want those deposits. Why? You know, potentially for more lending or whatever their strategy is at that time. But yes. Insurance companies actually do the same thing. Yes, they do. So they'll offer fixed annuity rates or annuity rates at certain caps, and then they'll shut that right down as soon as they get enough deposits. Yep. Absolutely. Another one of my um, favorite ones or one you could do that some people do is using money market accounts or CDs. It's kind of like the high yield savings are now. They just don't pay very good interest, right? Yeah, and there's not really like too much reason. I mean, money market accounts and savings accounts. Yes, money market accounts have a couple more features than a savings account, um, but not too enticing. I mean, the rates are just so low. And to go back to what you were saying, though, yeah, I'm kind of leaning towards Ally Bank a little bit more recently. Um, the Marcus by Goldman Sachs. They just have a couple like nicer features, um, and they're just a little bit more advanced. I feel like than Marcus. Marcus does have some limitations. I feel like Marcus was on a really good track there for a while, but they need to make some adjustments, and I don't feel feel like they've done that yet. Yeah, not as vo- evolving as fast. Like they have some limitations on like wires and titling, yep. um, and it's kind of you know pushed me away from recommending them recently. I I wonder why two CDs are still people are still utilizing them. The the rates are low. Why lock up your money? You know, you're locking in a rate when rates can't can't really go much lower. So what's the benefit there? Not too much benefit besides the benefit to the bank. But I think a lot of times what happens is, is you go and open up a, a money market account at Marcus, it's paying, you know, 50 basis points, but then they send you an email saying a CD is paying you 75. So although it is higher, um, even for, let's say six months, like that spread isn't big enough to make it worth it for you locking it up. So I think that they get a lot of customers that way as well, is still buying CDs. What would be the next tier of option then? If you like high yield savings, you didn't like money market, you didn't like CDs, where are you going next? If you look at bonds, you know, if you select the, the right government bond, you could get a decent interest rate. There's some, um, oh gosh, I'm drawing a blank on what they're called. Um, the, uh, the education savings bonds, you remember? Savings bonds? Yeah, yeah. You, you could use something like that or you could actually go to the actual bond market where they're, where they're traded, get maybe a decent rate there, 2%, 1%, a little bit better than the bank. Uh, but again, you are introducing some risk. And I think if you're trying to spend a little bit more time on this to get a little bit more interest, it's not that much more difficult to try to get maybe a municipal bond where you can get federally and state tax-free, right? Like, why wouldn't you not just take the extra step to try to get some bonds if you want to keep it conservative? Yeah, you might introduce a slight little element of risk, but why not do you like a, maybe a bond fund at this point? I think because it's uh, like one of the biggest things is it's might be foreign, right? It's new. Um, you are introducing a little bit of risk. And again, you have to make sure that you don't necessarily really need that money in the short term because of that risk. Because we are, 
like you said, going to that next tier, right? So we went from safe, no risk, FDIC insured accounts, and now you're using a bond, which does have potentially some fluctuation, although still relatively safe, a little bit higher yield. But again, now you're moving into a little bit of a different sector. So you're getting it, you're introducing a new tier essentially, but there could be much, there could be more benefit to this new tier. Yeah, absolutely, because we're looking to battle that I word inflation. Um, so you're looking to get a little bit more return than those low interest rates we were just talking about from money markets and CDs and savings accounts. So, so still, where bonds are yielding today, you're still slightly losing if you're going this route. You're just not losing as bad. Correct. You make a good point. Yeah, it's not solving your issue completely. No, the no. issue is. That you're losing purchasing power because of inflation. Exactly. So what would be the next favorite cash management strategy if you don't, if you want to attempt to not be going negative with inflation? You could set up a portfolio of stocks and bonds. Um, You could have your stocks as your inflation hedge. And then if you get your bonds as your stability, um, you know, you could get a good two and a half percent there. Then stocks, if you know, you're looking to make five to five to eight percent, and that could actually be enough to boost you um kind of into that green category that we're talking about um where you're keeping up with inflation um something like a 20 percent stock portfolio or a 30 percent stock portfolio could do here actually that's what i was thinking too and and i feel like a lot of people you know still think by adding stock it's getting very really aggressive but adding that 20 percent stock isn't getting it too aggressive but you're now starting to reach that number which we're trying to achieve which is beating inflation so it is going to add that risk element to the portfolio. But again, it's still on that conservative side of the investment spectrum, which could be good for a lot of people who are sitting on a ton of cash. Yeah. So here's a, a way to think about it. Historically, if you're in you know, a 20% stock portfolio, your max downside's probably been around 10 to 15%. Well, that's fine and dandy. Your max downside in inflation, if we get another five years of 5% inflation, is now you've lost 10% of your money already. Yeah, that's a great point. So you might as well take the risk. Yeah. Um, any additional strategies that we can use to you know, try to offset some of this inflation? One that I see a lot of people do, and it's super popular on some corners of the internet, is dividend stocks. Um, you, you know, I'm not a fan of this one, actually, because, like, one, you're introducing a lot of risk to your cash. Um, you know, let's take AT&T for an example. This is one that was a favorite of all the dividend stock people right and it got a pretty significant not only haircut to the dividend but a haircut to the stock price and why so, was it important and why did people like AT&T it paid a high dividend yield i think it was like 6 7% for a couple of years and they cut the dividend and then the stock price you know tumbled by like 50% or more so not only is your dividend checks less now but also your portfolio size is less so you lost a ton of money so it's just in- introducing a lot more risk where you could do something a little bit where your upside's not going to quite be there, but it's actually safer, which is like a balanced portfolio like we were just talking about. And just to go back on like dividends, that's the, the profits you receive from the business for being a shareholder. That's correct. And, you know, I don't like them either. I, I, if we're buying stocks and we're investing in stocks, I, I feel like we're doing that for the growth, not necessarily for them to pay me out some profits. I'd rather them reinvest that profit. Why are they paying me out such a big profit? And it kind of raises questions on the company. And then when they cut it, like you said, like with AT&T, then the stock price tumbles and now I'm losing on both ends. So the strategy you don't like is, is having your dividends paid out to you as income and not reinvesting it. 
as like an income type strategy to offset inflation. You'd rather see the dividends from your stocks get reinvested and buy more shares. Buy more shares, but also just not, I mean, I'm not buying a stock because of the dividend. I, I don't even really invest in stocks because of that dividend. I want that dividend to be building a better company. You know, I want those profits being used and building a better culture and providing growth with that stock because that's ultimately what we're investing in the stocks for is that growth for Google, the long term. Google doesn't pay a dividend be, or, an, or even Amazon because they take the cash the business generates and invest in other business lines that makes the shareholders more money, thus the stock price goes higher. Correct. And so why do some people really think that this is a good strategy? Because I think it is a popular strategy amongst some subsets of people where they think, I can get passive income from these dividend stocks and I could create myself this passive income to live off of, but that strategy does not really actually grow your net worth sometimes. You know, I, I think it's kind of like the CD way of thinking. It's a, it's a little bit older of a, a strategy that might have worked, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago. Doesn't work that well today in today's environment, unfortunately. That, that's a good summary of it. Um, are there any other favorite cash management strategies? Yeah, before, before we move on real quick, I'll just point out cryptocurrency. I, I think this is a really unique area. Um, and in the next five to 10 years, I could see this becoming really consumer facing where, you know, maybe you purchase a cryptocurrency and you stake it, um, which w- way above, above today's podcast. But, you know, you could earn interest rates around five to 10%. We mentioned BlockFi on a previous podcast that offers pretty decent rates of return on US dollar coin. It's not consumer facing yet, though. So this just isn't ready for everybody. You have to be pretty technically savvy to get in there and do this. It's just new. Are there any other management strategies that you can think of? I mean, I think we've hit a lot of really important ones. Um, This one isn't my favorite at all, but I think it's probably worth mentioning because it is marketed very well. But insurance products and annuities, right? So cash can go into these types of products or an annuity. Um, I'm sure you've seen commercials on annuities or received a flyer on them. Um, but uh, Or dinner seminar invitation. Dinner seminar invitation, yes. Uh, that's popular as well. Um, that can be a strategy that is not for, for everybody. Uh, that's a for, probably for a very small um, sector of people. I think, Brent, you could probably touch on that. Um, too. Yeah, I mean, you got to be careful of the rates that they're introducing and the amount of time they're locking your money out up for. I think a lot of what's introduced or shown or advertised is commission-based products that are just going to lock your money up and your effective rate of return is going to be very low. If we see interest rates go up to 2%, 3%, 4%, you're already locked into a contract for a long period of time, so you're not going to be getting those new rates. Uh, I'd be very, very careful in doing something like that to offset inflation. Absolutely. Um, and then we always recommend really keeping three to six months of your money in an emergency fund for you know expenses that could come up. How should people view that bucket of cash? In my opinion, they should you know put it in a high yield savings account and not touch it. But anything in excess of that, we could go to some of those strategies that we were discussing earlier. Maybe the more conservative portfolio or even the dividend stocks, if that's really your fancy. But I would keep that that cash actually, you know, in that high yield savings account, even though you know you're losing on it. At least you know it's there for the emergency. I think if there's one great thing that you can take away from the show, it's that like once you get beyond your six months of savings, you should really look beyond at what your options are investing, and you can go into these different tiers of investing. And then it allows you to be more comfortable with investing, right? Because you're not having to dip into those investments. You know you have that emergency cash there. And when you ask this question, like, how should you view this emergency savings bucket? I agree with you, Matt. Like, it isn't there, right? 
set it aside. Don't look at it because it's it's there for that emergency or those excess expenses, not for everyday need or investment. What are some of your least favorite strategies that you see clients doing with inflation? Um, my one of mine is the just like Josh was saying, those teaser promotions. Deposit yeah. ten thousand, we'll give you a hundred dollars or five hundred dollar Visa card. Man, I don't like this. Yeah, and then just too much cash in a big bank savings or even checking account. I mean, we see that a lot. You're seeing finally that inflation's catching up on you. Having that too much cash can be, you know, just so bad for your your financial plan and we've seen that. So just having too much, it should raise a red flag of, you know, implementing a new strategy or looking and researching into something else, especially with inflation of where it's at now. My my least favorite strategy I think is not having a plan not really specifically laying out, you know, if you're going into like your cash management strategies and your investment strategy without specifically laying out a plan, I think that's my least favorite because there's really no thought and detail to why you're doing what you're doing. It's more of an emotional decision. You're going off your opinions. You probably need to detail out a plan six months. Here's where it goes. Here's the next tier, the next tier. Once you have a plan, I mean, then that's a strategy. Yeah. And I think you're right. Having that plan again makes you feel more comfortable because I think that's a lot you know, sometimes you don't want to change or you get used to have seeing that much cash or, you know, in your account. But laying out the plan, like you said, definitely can just help you feel more comfortable and battle and battle inflation. Yeah, I, I agree. I think these are important. Inflation is definitely here, here. A lot of people are feeling it. And the best thing to do is to, to create a plan around it to offset as much of it as possible. All right, let's get in the last part of the show. Let's get to RPA recommends. Josh, you want to start us off? Sure. Yeah, I'll start us off. So um, I'm going to recommend a home product today. I bought a MyQ. It's like a MyQ garage door opener. So what it does is it, it sends a signal from your garage door to your phone that lets you know if your door, your garage door is open or shut. And then it also allows you to open it or shut it through your app or your cell phone. Actually pretty cheap. I think it was only like 30 bucks. Uh, and really cool to see again if you're not home or if you know um, you want to open your garage door from an app just a really cool cheap device that works pretty well so i think it's my q um, is the company that makes them and they're compatible with a bunch of different garage door openers um but got the recommendation tried it out i like it i think that's a great recommendation i mean how many times have you left your house and then got down the street and like oh i I don't know if i closed (laughs) did i close my garage Yeah. yeah gotta go back yeah, or you're just gone. You want to make sure it's done, or a family member drops by and is dropping something off, and you want them to, you know, open your garage door and leave it in the garage so it's not sitting on your front porch. I like it. Yeah, great recommend. So this is actually I'm gonna go with an app today that's on everyone's iPhone. If you have an iPhone, um, I'm going with the Apple News app, specifically Apple News Plus. I really enjoy reading um, different news stories and headlines and clicking around at articles and kind of digesting news for about 15, 20 minutes a day. I had never used Apple News or Apple News Plus before, but I'm on um, a family plan with my wife and she added it for her work. And I got to say, I really like it. I, I, I read it now about for 20 minutes uh, before bed. You also, if you have the Plus version, get access to almost like every magazine from GQ to Golf Digest to all the popular home ones and cooking ones, vacation ones, travel leisure. And it's it's really cool. Um, you you basically just click that you want that uh, magazine sent to your phone, and then it it comes to your phone or your iPad, and you could read it on that device. Really enjoy it. That's interesting. I didn't even know they had that. 
Yeah, me either. Like I, I had heard about it during like an Apple release a couple of years ago, and I don't think a lot of people are using it. But basically, where Apple's going with all the pricing of their services is towards the bundle pricing. And the Apple News Plus, my wife added it to our bundle. It wasn't that much more expensive, and it's really nice. I like it a lot. I think it was like kind of the same time as when they came out with like their workout subscription too, right? Yeah, it was. Okay. And then from our angle as advisors, it has, uh, you know, the Wall Street Journal on there, Business Insider, CNBC, and it just curates all the articles. So I have a business section. I, I could scan at night to see what's going on in the world. So I can stop, can I, does that mean I can stop paying for a Wall Street subscription? I'm not sure. Because, um, I mean, I've just been experimenting for a couple of weeks. But, yeah, we might be able to. No, to, not yet. It. I don't have the news app yet. Yeah. So, <laughs> wait. Well, yeah, if you want to start paying for an extra news app for Josh. <laughs> uh, holiday season's around the corner. And if you need some new shoes, I have a recommendation for you. Ellen Edmonds makes really nice dress shoes. They are ones that hold up, which are nice. But on there, you can Google search Ellen Edmonds factory seconds, and they are discounted because of a blemish or something that may be on the shoe. I've ordered factory seconds from them multiple times. I've never figured out what's wrong with the shoe, where the blemish is, and I'd rather save 30 or 40% of my shoes. So uh, I would recommend if you are needing a good uh, shoe, that's a good way to get a discounted shoe price too also. I'll close sign that recommends. I use the Allen Edmonds factory seconds. Yeah, I, I wouldn't buy them full price because if you can just get them with a little blemish, why not? I don't. I I've never even found a blemish on any of the ones I've ordered either. Yeah, good recommends. Maybe there's just no blemish and they're just on sale. Who knows? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> they're enticing me to buy them. So. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so as advisors, we love helping people. That's why we do it. If you'd like to schedule an appointment with any of us, please go to rpawealth.com and schedule a complimentary consultation. You can also download our ebook on our website. If you'd like the show notes, please go to retirementplanplaybook.com. As always, thanks for listening. RPA Wealth Management is a state-registered investment advisor located in Rancho Cucamonga, California. Registration does not imply a certain level of skill or training. RPA Wealth Management may only transact business in those states and jurisdictions in which it is registered or qualifies for an exemption or exclusion from registration requirements. A copy of RPA Wealth Management's current disclosure statement, Form ADV Part 1, containing RPA Wealth Management's business operations, services, and fees is available by accessing the SEC's Investment Advisor Public Disclosure website. RPA Wealth Management will provide Form ADV Part 2A from Brochure and 2B Brochure Supplement to interested parties upon request. Information provided on this podcast should not be construed as a solicitation or offer or recommendation to acquire or dispose of any investment or engage in any other transaction. RPA Wealth Management does not render or offer to render personal investment advice or financial planning advice through its podcasts. RPA Wealth Management podcasts are intended for information and educational purposes only.